is the Healthy Families Podcast, and I am your host, Jenny Hatch. Yesterday at the Free Press, which is the Substack, started by Barry Weiss, Isaac Grafstein wrote an article titled The Rise of the Right-Wing Peacenik, and this was published on March 2nd, 2023. And he just went through the evolution that so many of us have had on the right from solid neocon to very comfortably calling ourselves anti-war. And as I read this, I was forced to remember my own evolution. And um, since I've been thinking about it, I thought it was a good time to share my story because I don't talk about this much on my own stuff my own podcast, I do tend to talk about it on socialist podcasts where they're talking about anti-war things. And as I just share my evolution and try to convince those who have historically been anti-war that yes, there's a huge component of the right that is now very comfortably calling themselves anti-war. Most of the time I've been met with skepticism. Like that's not, that's not true, but it, it is. pause. So I'm not going to go through the article because I put a link and you can click over and read it. It was really well put together. And I think he captured, he definitely captured the moment. But I do believe my story is illustrative of what's been going on. And so I offer it here, you know, just to give one more testimonial, if you will. Uh, I grew up in a conservative family in Detroit. My dad was very patriotic and his hero was George Washington. I was taught to love the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and reverence the Founding Fathers and the sacrifices that they made to establish our free republic. And so this is the climate that I grew up in. I have three brothers who are military one in-law brother who's military and all four of them went to uh, the Defense Language Institute. No, three of them did. Oh, my sister-in-law too. And learned second languages, mostly Korean, but also Arabic. And then did at least four years and two of my brothers did 20 years as a career in the military. One of my brothers was in the Marine Corps. Um, And so I, I grew up in a military family where my dad had served in the National Guard. And when you grow up in one of these households, um, you just have a deep understanding of the sacrifices that are made by the men and women of our military who often will leave their families for months and years at a time to go do whatever the politicians have determined they need to do. And so at least I was mostly supportive of the many conflicts that, um, my family went and served him because I believed they were doing righteous work. When my brother went to Iraq as a JAG Corps attorney in the army, he had a young family, a wife and small children who were stationed in Germany. And just before he went into Iraq during the early months of the war, a helicopter full of his fellow attorneys was shot down in Iraq and many of his friends were killed. And um, it made it so much more sobering as he went into that country, knowing how dangerous it was and how he was mourning his friends. And so he served in for a year and while he was there, he sent a weekly email to all the family. So not only did I voraciously read all the coverage of the war in the media. I had this kind of bird's eye view through my brother's emails of what was happening on the ground. And as the anti-war movement against Iraq and Afghanistan built 
during the time when Saddam Hussein was still alive, I was really angry at them because I felt like they were making things more dangerous for my brother and the rest of the soldiers. And Saddam was using the, you know, the video of anti-war demonstrations um, to say, you know, see, the American people don't want this war and, you know, they're rising up. And so he was using it. One day I was listening to Air America radio, Al Franken show, which I, I have always loved listening to the left um, because it gives me an insight into how they're thinking. And I have had many moments of, you know, wondering what are they thinking? Because so many of their positions seem foreign to me. And Al Franken was talking about these people called freepers and how um, we need to we needed to stand up to the freepers because he was deeply concerned about what they were doing. And I thought, if there's some group out there that has Al Franken worried, I want to go find out who they are and join them because I felt like the anti-war movement needed to be confronted and pushed back against because, you know, they were making things dangerous for our troops. So I Googled Freepers and found that there's a website called Free Republic that you could join as a member and participate on their online board. But this was also a group of people who engaged in direct action. And so I saw that they had a rally that had been organized as a pro-war rally to confront a, a group that was in Longmont, Colorado, where I currently live. And the Longmont anti-war group had been organizing monthly or maybe even weekly demonstrations in downtown Longmont. And this group of Freepers was going to go counter demonstrate. And I thought, well, you know, I'm going to go join those people. So I remember driving up 287 from my house in Louisville. And at one point I pulled off on the side of the road and sat in my car, really pondering if I wanted to publicly out myself as pro-war. Is this really who I was? I remember praying about it and just feeling like, you know, I'm not sure that I want to go be in a place where I could be photographed or even have a video made or the media be there. And, you know, when you decide to become an activist and engage in street theater, street demonstrations, rallies, um, you pin yourself in a way that other people can notice and see and, oh my gosh, this is who this person is. And I really was questioning, is this who I am? I wasn't sure. But I really wanted to support my brother. And so after I pondered for a few minutes, I decided to just drive up and see what was going on. So there were two groups separated by a road and uh, the police were there making certain that there was no um, engagement with each other. It made everybody stay on their own side. Our group was small and there was a very large group of anti-war activists holding United Nations flag, flags and signs that had doves on them and all sorts of anti-Bush, anti-war uh signage and they were making a very, very loud noise. And the pro-war side was probably like 30 people. And right in the middle of it was a Native American man with long hair and a drum, like a bongo drum that he kept beating. And he was dressed in his military uniform. It was obvious he had served in some war, probably Vietnam, based on his age. This was 2003-ish, the beginning of the war. And the others who were there just looked like ordinary Americans. And they weren't, weren't really doing anything. And then I, I was like, let's sing. So I started singing uh, patriotic hymns. And everybody joined in and we started uh, with the national anthem and then just sang all these hymns and it was it was kind of fun 
you know, standing with fellow patriots in support of our troops. And that was my first anti-war event. And it kind of hooked me. I was like, you know, I like this. I like being with these people and standing up to those people who have obvious affiliations with uh, groups that are not American in terms of the United Nations. And I decided to become very belligerent and open in my disgust with anti-war activism. To that end, I decided to go to as many anti-war rallies as I could. I didn't stay long, but I would show up and stay for at least 15, 20 minutes, maybe an hour here and there. And I bought a United Nations flag at the um, Army-Navy store in Boulder, and I desecrated it, roughed it up a little bit, and this was my form of demonstration, was to stand on the United Nations flag, and I had made a handkerchief out of a second United Nations flag that I would pull out of my pocket and blow my nose into, and did these types of provocative things to the anti-war demonstrators because I perceived that they were not just anti-war, they were anti-America and pro-United Nations. And I did not want to affiliate with them or those causes at all. I love my country and I wanted to stand with the troops. And once I started to interface with the pro-war, pro-troop, pro-Bush crowd on Free Republic, I quickly realized that they had a goal. And the number one goal of that site and Jim Robinson, who had started it, and the other patriots who joined it, many of whom were military men and women, was to make certain that what happened to our Vietnam veterans when they came home from that war did not happen to our vets who came home from Iraq and Afghanistan. They wanted to make certain that the men and women of our military were supported, not only during the war, but when they came home, and that there be no shaming of them for their service to our country. And I was all about that. And so every time there was something that I felt like I could sneak away from my family, which I had a young family at the time, five young children and a new baby who was born in 2002. But every time I felt like I could sneak away and go and demonstrate, I did. There was one time I went down to Denver and I was the only one who showed up. (laughs) It was me and a whole bunch of lefties and they did not like the way that I was demonstrating. And the police were watching the whole thing. And at one point, a group of them came running down off the Capitol. I stayed on the sidewalks because I felt like I'd be safer. But they came running down and kind of surrounded me and started screaming at me and swearing at me and F the troops. And, you know, they were very mad. And one of the police in his car came over and drove right up on the sidewalk and just looked at them like back off. And it made me feel safe to know that the police were very engaged and watching and kind of had my back as I demonstrated on my United Nations flag and did things to uh, antagonize those progressives who showed up to demonstrate against against the war. Um, During that same rally, after those socialist kids left, Another man noticed me demonstrating and he came over and started really uh, getting aggressive with his language at me. He was so angry at me. And there were five um, anarchist kids, I would call them kids, but they were like early 20s. And these five people came and said, you know, leave her alone. She can demonstrate however she wants. You're not going to change her mind. You know, you need to leave her alone. And he wouldn't. He just kept screaming at me. So these five anarchist people made a circle around me. 
One of them even asked to hold one of my flags. I had a couple of big American flags. So they held my flag and they said, you go ahead and demonstrate we got your back. And I still get a little teary thinking about these guys because it was uh, three guys and two women because it, they didn't have to do that. You know, they could have stayed on the sidelines and just watched as most people did. But um, they had my back. And they even felt so concerned about this man's uh, rage towards me that they offered to escort me to my car. And so I had parked across um, from the Capitol. It was probably a good solid block, like a city block, to walk to my car. And um, as we started over there, this man followed us. And he was heckling me and yelling at me and swearing, called me fat. And I was like, you know, just really rude. And as we got closer to my car, there was a reporter from Nine News. And he was just kind of over there getting ready to go over to the Capitol. And um, he came up and asked if he could interview me. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm here to counter demonstrate. He said, no, I think that'd be really interesting for our listeners. So it was a nine news reporter. I don't remember his name, but he did a short interview. And when it was finished, he was like, who are these people? And I said, oh, there was this guy. He's actually right over there. I pointed to the guy who had followed us. I said, he's right over there. He was kind of menacing me. And these people offered to escort me to my car. They were really kind to watch my back. And he said, well, I want to interview these guys too. So he interviewed these anarchists and they shared their positions and told what had happened. And then he went over and interviewed the guy who had been so menacing. As I got in my car, I watched him do that. And I didn't think too much about this um, until the next day when I went to church. And my friend Ruth came up to me and she said, were you on the news yesterday? I said, I don't know, was I? She said, you, you were on the news talking about the war and how you supported the troops. I was like, oh, they must have played that on the news. And they did. And I went and I, some, I think I found it online or something. It was there. Oh, there I am. And she told me that um, she was really glad to know that I was standing up for the troops because her son was serving in Iraq, his third tour in Iraq. And I had met Joe just a couple of years before when he had come to our home as a volunteer fireman after the birth of my fourth baby, we had a home birth and it didn't go so well. So we called 911 to ask for help because I hemorrhaged and my son was not breathing. And Joe was one of the people who showed up that day to help our family. He was a volunteer fireman and through a series of events, he ended up in the ambulance that took my son to the hospital and when my son was having difficulty breathing and his vitals were really bad in the ambulance and they were trying to um, revitalize him, Joe said a prayer for my son. And he said as, as he prayed, he immediately saw all of my son's vitals normalize in the ambulance. And so we've always thought of Joe as just a special person in our family. We adopted him as an adoptive uncle. And Ruth told me that when she talked to Joe the next time and told him about my solo uh, freep, you know, we called him freeps when we'd go demonstrate. And that I was on the news. He burst into tears because he was so grateful that I had stood up for him to the anti-war people. And so I, when she told me that, I was like, all right, any event I can go to, I'm going to do it for Joe. My brother had come home. And for from like 2003 to 2006, I went to every anti-war rally I could fit into my schedule and um, stood up for the troops and their mission because I really believed in the goal of spreading democracy around the globe. I, I really believe that America had a moral obligation to help people free themselves from their tyrants and the tyrannies 
and help them get a, you know, get an opportunity to set up a republic in their nation if that's what they wanted. And so I thought of the work that we were doing in Iraq as noble work that um, would have a benefit that justified the costs of the deaths, especially of our military people, but also of the Iraqis and those who were in those countries uh, who wanted freedom, who wanted to have a more democratic process in their country. So I fully believed in those goals, and I still do believe in those goals. I don't believe we should force people to be democracies at the point of a gun, but where we can help, I believe we should. And when my progressive friends would, you know, say it's not possible for certain countries to live democratically and to have republics because they're not wired for it, I would point to Japan and say, when America stayed in Japan at, for six years after World War II, uh, they helped them set up a democracy. Those Japanese women are so subservient to their husbands and to their leadership in the country. They, they don't want the vote. They don't want to vote. How misogynistic can you be? This is a precious thing for these women to have the right to vote. And so they were given the right to vote. And today, you know, you look at the Japanese women and how confident and assertive they are, and they make up half of the government and, you know, how, how arrogant to think that Japanese women, because of their culture and their traditions, would not want to be involved in the process of governing their nation. And I feel the same way about the Muslim nations and what we would term in the West, the heathen nations. Who doesn't want to be free? Who doesn't want to have a democracy? And where we can help, we should. And if there are totalitarian systems being embedded and set up in certain nations, why shouldn't we speak up about that and try to help where we can? There's so much second guessing going on about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and how it was all about the military industrial complex making money. And that was it. That was the only thing that happened was they made lots of money. I'm open to the idea that in the coming years, perhaps people from those countries will point to this time of war and say, maybe it was worth it to get a more democratic situation in our country and send our tyrant and his two sons packing, Saddam Hussein and his two sons. Um, I don't know. I mean, back in the day, during our revolution and decoupling from the British system and setting up our democracy, our republic, there was a lot of death. There were tremendous sacrifices. There were horrifying things that happened to every single person who signed the Declaration of Independence. They suffered. They lost their homes. They lost their families. I've read that Patrick Henry's wife went insane. And during the final years of her life, they had to keep her tied to a chair because she was so crazy. She suffered during that war and the after effects kept her in a state of insanity till she died. So I believe there are righteous wars and wars that lead to good outcomes. And sometimes you can't see the good that manifests for many years. And for a hundred years after the American Revolution, there was a big question about whether or not we would survive. And the armchair generals in Europe across the pond spent those hundred years until our civil war. Oh, any day now it's going to collapse. Any day now it's not going to work. Any day now we're going to have to go in and start governing those uppity Americans because it's just a big mess. It's not a success. And then, oh, civil war. They're having a civil war. Any day now it's all going to collapse. We'll have to go in and fix it because they just can't govern themselves. 
I think there's still people over in Europe who are kind of waiting for the American experiment to fail, pointing to our failures and saying, oh, time to go in and divide up America and live off the spoils. So I'm optimistic about the countries that have had these types of situations unfold, that it may take them some time, 50, 60, 100 years, to find a level of peace, prosperity. The problem I have with what we've done in Iraq and Afghanistan specifically, and other nations around the world, is the never-ending war and the seeming uh, illusory endgame goals. How much support is enough? When do we call it quits? When do we say it's time to come home? It is in the excesses of never-ending war and the costs and the sacrifice of the American people where I say, you know, maybe it's time for America to shut down all of our bases around the world, bring all of our troops home, set our troops up on our border, and mind our own business. Is it time for that? Yeah, I think it's time for that. When the founders said we don't want to get involved in entangling alliances, the entanglement we find ourselves in today is so extreme and so much evil has been done on the dime of the American taxpayer that, yeah, I think it's time for us to come home and mind our own business and perhaps atone a bit for the sins of the people who lead us. And those sins are mighty. You know, everybody... And I think of Sean Hannity the most when I say this. But everybody has pointed to President Obama's spiritual leader in Chicago, Jeremiah Wright, as an anti-American person in our country because of one of the speeches he gave, damning America to hell. And they always share that clip. I I bet Sean Hannity shared it on his show like 10,000 times over the last 20 years. This is who Obama is. This is who his spiritual leader is. Anti-war, anti-American preacher. But they never share the whole clip. And before he went on his rant, Jeremiah Wright talked about the American military's ties to the creation of the AIDS virus and the work of Dr. Leonard Horowitz in his book, Ebola and AIDS. Is it nature, accident, or intentional? He cited the work. The black community is very aware of Dr. Horowitz's book because they have suffered the most, and friends and family in Africa have suffered the most losses with this virus and are very clear about what has been done to their people in the name of public health. And so Jeremiah Wright was talking about those things when he said he wanted to damn America. And, you know, I'm right there with Jeremiah. When you think about the death and destruction that's come because of these viruses, the way that they were deployed, In the scriptures, it talks about how through peace, they will destroy many. And they have. When you have a war against humanity being waged by people about, uh, concerned about men becoming too strong, too organized, and willing to overthrow governments and systems. And you come up with this plan to keep those populations down with never-ending war and warfare in the form of biological weapons encased in a syringe. And you take the best and brightest of every nation and take them off to these military bases and shoot them up with all these vaccines, many of which have disabled or killed 
multitudes of our military men and women. That's a war that just never ends. And when I think about that war, that's the war that I feel the most compelled to yell about because there's so much deception there. You know, when our Gulf War vets started coming up with something they called Gulf War Syndrome, uh, a series of diseases that often led to death, there were many people who were pointing to the anthrax vaccine as being the source of that disease. And it was claimed that the military records documenting these cases of side effects from that vaccine were housed in the Oklahoma City building. That was the repository for all of these documents and that a case was being built and made that the anthrax vaccine was causing this horrifying disease in our veterans. And they would say it was things like, oh, there was some spoiled food that the soldiers ate when they were over in, in Iraq during the first Gulf War. Um, there was some water that, you know, became contaminated and that's how they, they got sick. And so there are all, the, all these excuses being put forth of why these people had these sicknesses. But there were many people in the military who came up with the exact same symptoms of Gulf War syndrome who were never deployed to Iraq and Kuwait, never served during that first Gulf War. They were stateside and they still came up with this syndrome. And so there was a brilliant epidemiologist who came up with a test and she called it the antibody test that if someone had been administered this vaccine and they had antibodies show up in their blood, it was proof that they had had this shot and thus these symptoms. And so she went around giving this antibody test to everybody who was sick with Gulf War syndrome. And they all had had the anthrax shot and some of them had had it from the same batch and vial. And this is a side of the story that's coming out now with the COVID vaccine, that certain batches sent to certain states were much more problematic for the members of our citizenry. And that in certain red states, the death toll from the COVID vaccine has been outrageous. And there are people collecting batch and lot numbers of various vaccines to prove that certain lots and batches caused a ton of death. And I hope that that side of the story is really fleshed out over the coming years because it's a pattern of what happened in the past. And when I had Dr. Horowitz on one of my shows back when we were talking about Ebola, he explained to me that certain leaders in African countries were always nervous about a military coup and they didn't want to be um, relieved of power, or their family dynasty shut down by the military. So they would administer vaccines to their own military knowing that they were going to get sick with AIDS or other diseases and whether they were sick or dead didn't matter. They just were not able to be healthy enough to rise up against the government. And Len said when he realized that some of these leaders in Africa were poisoning their own people, he said for two weeks he couldn't work, he couldn't write, he could barely process what he had just learned. And so I believe certain leaders of countries have partnered with the drug industrialists in America and other places to do their dirty deeds to their own people. And there have been some, interestingly enough, like Muammar Gaddafi, who when a group of health practitioners came to Libya to vaccinate all the people, he killed them said, we're not going to have this in our nation. 
We love our people. We don't want our young girls being made infertile. And we don't want you sharing your poisons with our people. I personally believe that's one of the main reasons he was killed. Hillary Clinton also needed a, um, a line on her resume indicating she was tough. And so that was her kill. She was proud of it. She bragged about it. Felt like it gave her street cred in the neocon camps to say, I could do, I could do difficult things, including killing this man, this tyrant. And, um, Libya today is, is really a sad place. So as I share this story, I'm, I'm trying to convey to you how I've been trying to sort it all out in my mind. Who's the evil one? Who's doing what? Somebody said on Twitter recently that it really is the people and like 99% of the people versus like 1% of those who would make their money off of the sickness and the wars and the drugs and the trafficking and their, their families. And it really is a us versus them war more than a, you know, communism versus uh, Nazism and all the tropes of the isms from the last hundred years that those two, you know, you're fascist, you're a communist. Those two things are kind of like, you know, Republican, Democrat, just want to keep us divided, screaming at each other. And that it would be better for us to think of, you know, we the people in various nations versus those who want to dominate us and enslave us with their great reset. So as I've faced difficult truths about who I've aligned with, who I've stood up for, who I have defended publicly at rallies and in situations, um, I've had to kind of, you know, sort things out in my own head. On some level, I still don't have it all figured out. I do believe it is appropriate for us to question every bit and particle of the Ukraine war and those who wish to have us jump from that into World War III. And so I have strongly aligned myself with anti-war activists in both my activism online and much emotional support to say this is where we need to put our energies and prevent World War III by any means necessary, because it's obvious that if nukes become the way, the preferred way of fighting, uh, that could lead to the deaths of so many people. And if we can prevent that, we should. That's my posture on nuclear war. If we can prevent it, if we can do anything to stop it, we should. So I hope this helps you to understand a little bit more my positions on warfare. I do believe the millennium is going to be a time of peace. I can see it in the distance. I can see that through technology and modern communication tools, where perhaps you would have interpreters who are not clearly conveying the truth to each side, trying to talk to each other. And I think about people who speak English trying to make treaties with Native American tribes and, and what was lost in translation and what, what kind of subterfuge and lies were being told as various people are uh, stealing land and getting uh, unfair situations inked, signed, and I believe that's happened all over the world where you've had those, even the soldiers sometimes who've gone into certain situations were not told the truth of why they were there and what they were doing. And their families back home, even more confused about what the goals are and what's happening here. And are we doing a righteous thing? Um, I believe many of 
the people, men and women of the military have been defrauded and told this is what they were doing when in fact it was not not the case. So you'll see at these these anti-war rallies today, many people who have been part of the military industrial complex who are disgusted with what they did and what they supported. And so um, there's that too, that as the supposedly new um, anti-war right rises up, uh, these right-wing peaceniks, as they termed it at free, the free press, as you see them demonstrating and speaking out and asking the important questions, uh, I believe those are voices we should listen to. It has been a thing that in certain spaces online, as anti-war activists have talked, they have demanded a purity test of who can participate who's worthy to participate, who they think should not participate or speak out or who's fake or a fraudster. And while I agree that there's probably some of that going on, um, because we're always being propagandized, if you have someone like me who has comfortably called themselves a neocon and then could not affiliate anymore with that designation for whatever reason, and for me, it came in the like 2006, 2007. I started to slowly walk away from this group because I read that traditional farmers in Iraq and Afghanistan were being arrested and locked up as terrorists because they refused to use Monsanto's seeds and their gardening and farming methods. And I was so disgusted by that. I was like, why are we there? What's going on? What is this all about? And I really started to question the war back in 2006. So I don't know what's ahead of us outside of what I read in the scriptures, which is there is going to be peace, millennial peace. Short term, it's it's kind of messy. The economy may collapse. We may have hyperinflation in America for the first time. I don't look forward to that. I think it will be a real a real wake-up call for those who voted for President Biden and his economic policies, which his policies have led us to this inflationary place. And if you don't believe that, you really need to study some basic economics books to understand how inflation is created by governments and their policies. Read Thomas Sowell. His books on economics are the best, and he is one of the best um, voices to educate you. But you can read the classical books, too, Road to Serfdom, Hayek, anything by Milton Friedman, and the Austrians. They have the facts. Read Atlas Shrugged. You know, I love Atlas Shrugged because while they do spend, I did do a, a, a fabulous job of outing the totalitarian left, communism, Marxism, and where it leads in society. Her books did that. I believe she spent more time in Alice Shrugged identifying those who would use taxpayer dollars to set up their businesses using corporate welfare and affiliations with government. She called it the aristocracy of pull those who would run a business using monies from the treasury and private partner partnerships that were funded by the taxpayers, but the owners of the companies get to reap all of the benefits. And those benefits are not shade, shared with the taxpayers. And she whacked those people pretty good and Atlas shrugged and reserved her most respect and identified the true, the true leaders in society. She called them the atlases as those who built businesses 
with their own blood, sweat, and tears. And uh, these are the people she called the men of the mind. And in the book, there's a person named John Galt who convinces the other producers to shrug and let their businesses go and come out to Colorado where he had set up an egalitarian society in Galt's Gulch, Colorado, where they had holed up until the Marxist state that had been set up in America collapsed. And then they could go back and go to work rebuilding our republic. I believe there are many people who have gone Galt since the early Obama years. That was a thing. And when I gave the opening speech at the first Denver Tea Party, I talked about the need to go Galt, especially with our health care, to shrug and go become sovereign in your own care of your own family because they were about to socialize American medicine to another degree. They're always pushing for that, always pushing for that final Medicare for all, which it, it truly is the death knell of every republic that's existed. You see there's this triumvirate of uh, men and women not, not wanting to work, living on the dole, not wanting to provide for themselves or do the hard work of farming or parenting. They don't want to have babies. You know, they want to just have the sex, but not the result of the sex. And they uh, often engage in abortion and infanticide and sacrifice their children to the gods. And you know, they don't want to do the work of parenting. And so you see a lot of uh, homosexuality and abortion. And the final, final thing that hits is socialized medicine, where people are guaranteed that you will have free health care. And the need for all this health care largely has come because of abandoning traditional family roles. There's a whole lot of disease that results with all that alternate alternative sexuality. And people find themselves sick and in need of help. And so here's the government to take care of the people with the health care that they really wouldn't need if they had lived in a quiet family setting husband and wife, loving, supporting each other, raising their own children, living quietly, growing their own food, raising their own animals. When you live this way, there's not a lot of disease in that situation. The really nasty diseases, the venereal diseases and the mental illness. It's a, a byproduct of the excesses. And so for those agitating for Medicare for all, I would ask you, what is the point of this pharmaceutical system having that much more control over the people? It just sickens me. We need a free market healthcare system and it's coming. It'll come and the rich will be able to go to their private clinics and their private doctors and even pay for home visits from doctors and the poor will be left with, you know, whatever you want to call healthcare when it's funded by the government. I just think of abortion and gender reassignment and again, all of the mental illness that results from Sinful living, breaking the commandments. You want a remedy for that? Repent of your sins, come unto Christ, and be perfected in him. And you will find health. You will find mental health. You will find physical health. That's my testimony and my witness. Does that mean I say never go to a doctor? No, that's not what I'm saying. But I believe 90% of the medical profession could stop existing today and we would all be healthier. So these are my thoughts on this day, the rise of the right-wing peacenik, of which I call myself one. And I would encourage you to go read the whole article over at the Free Press. 
And I don't think I'm going to necessarily align with any group going forward, pro or anti-war necessarily, because I do believe it is appropriate to have a skirmish or an engagement here or there with the military involved. If anybody messes with the American people, you know, this was outed in the book, 1984, constantly at war, constantly at war, Eurasia, the Americans. And it was just, you know, this is what they do. But if we had a situation where the military needed to be involved, engaged, I would support that. And I would hope that the leaders of our nation would be trustworthy enough that if they determined, as our commander-in-chief is endowed by his second title, he's president, but he's also the commander-in-chief of our armed forces, and our founders always intended that that person be a civilian. They did not want military people at the head of the government, despite us having military people as president here and there. They wanted it to be a civilian. I would hope that the president we choose would have the goal to have peace, world peace. And when you look at how many wars have been started over the last 30 years, there's only one man who didn't start any wars. And that's President Trump. And once you realize that and how he was willing to fight war quickly, decisively, and was constantly agitating for the troops to come home from Iraq and Afghanistan. So I plan to vote for President Trump in 2024 and trust him as a civilian president to determine when and if our military is engaged. And I would like to see our military bases shut down and our soldiers, the men and women of our armed forces, brought home where we mind our own business. That's what I'm hoping for. That's what I'm voting for. And I hope that um, as we go forward, we can all see the wisdom of having someone like that as our president instead of a warmonger like Joe Biden. So I hope you are having a great day. And I thank you for listening. <laughs>